you're good. You're so good. You treat us so much better than we deserve. And your grace is amazing. <laughs> However we get to this moment, and our journeys are all different, but we're here. In this moment, we're right here with you, and you're here with us. So help us not to miss the moment. Thank you for your grace and mercy that allows us to be here in your presence. I just pray that while our path here may have been different, that our path forward will be unified in Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first, I have to tell you something. You may have seen me on my phone this morning. I don't normally do that during church, but... I just got the, a picture, so today something incredible is happening. My son Eli is speaking right now. He's preaching his first sermon as I'm, uh, he's out. So he's wearing a tie today, so he's already making dad look bad, right? Like he did that upright, so I got a picture of him doing that. And my father, who is also a pastor in Jonesville, will be preaching in just a few minutes himself. And so in our family, for the first time ever, three generations of our family will be preaching at the same time. So that's kind of a neat moment for me. So, so you'll have to excuse my giddiness here this morning and, and why I was playing with my phone. Well, having said that, I want to ask you a question this morning as we get into our sermon today. And the sermon is, is, is around this idea, right? Who are you? Now, if I ask you that question, if I said, hey, tell me who you are, I, I would suspect there might be two or three things you do. You probably would want to tell me your name. You'd say, well, I'm so-and-so, whoever that is. And if I said to you, who are you, you probably would also tell me maybe where you live. You might say, well, I'm from this, or I live in Columbus. And most likely, you would tell me what you do. You know, I work at such and such, right? That's what I, what I do. That's what we typically say when someone asks us, who are you? This question, who are you, was asked of Jesus a lot. A lot of people wanted to know who Jesus was and what he was really about. And think about this, right? When the disciples were with Jesus, they already decided to follow him, but they were with, this, with Jesus, and we read this in Luke chapter 8. They're out on the boat, on the water, and about verse 28, after Jesus has calmed the storm and the sea is calm again, the disciples ask a question, right? It's kind of a who are you question. They say, who is this? Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. John the Baptist had disciples, and they had a lot of questions about Jesus, too. They wanted to know who Jesus was. In Matthew eleven three, 3, we read that, that his disciples came to Jesus. And they have a who are you question, too. Theirs is worded like this. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus, interestingly enough, even asked his disciples to answer the who are you question about him. Jesus one time said in, in Mark chapter 8, uh, there near Caesarea Philippi, that evil place we talked about last week, and that space, Jesus said, who do people say I am? When people ask the question of Jesus, who are you, who are the people saying that I am? And the disciples answer him, right? They, we read this in verse 27. It says, some of them said, well, people say you might be the reincarnated John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah. And still others say you're one of the prophets. But Jesus asked them, well, who do you say that I am? And of course, that powerful moment where Peter replies, well, you are the Messiah. You're, you're the Christ. That's who you are. It was a powerful moment. And while Peter and the disciples began to get a grasp on who Jesus was, the religious leaders, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, 
they had a really hard time with this question around Jesus, who are you? And they constantly wanted answers to that question. In fact, did you know there are over 99 times that the Pharisees uh, engage with Jesus that we read about in the New Testament? 99 occasions. I really wish I had time to go through all of them because it's actually really fascinating to see their interactions. And you can learn a lot about Jesus and a lot about people from how they, they interact with each other. But I'm not going to do that to you today. I'm going to just look at some passages from the book of Luke that show us these interactions between the Pharisees and Jesus. Now, something will happen. If you're asking the who are you question of Jesus, don't be surprised when Jesus flips the script on you. And when you're asking the question, who are you, Jesus, you might find yourself asking the question, well, who am I? <laughs> if that's who you are, who am I? And I want you to gather this. That's going to happen when it comes to the Pharisees. They're going to see the, the, the script get flipped on them in a big way. Their search to find the answer, who is Jesus, will lead them to question exactly who are they and what does that mean for them. Well, let's take a look at the first story. It's the first interaction that Luke records between Jesus and the Pharisees. It's that story we like, we call it the story of the roof wrecker. It's the interesting story about the guy who's paralyzed, and we always can speculate. It's, it's this horrible thing to speculate about. It's kind of fun to imagine, you know, hey, was he out drunk driving on a camel one night and fell off and got paralyzed? We don't know what happened to him, right? He's the paralyzed man in the story. Let's pick it up. It's in Luke, <coughs> excuse me, Luke chapter 5, beginning verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching, catch this, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. Everyone wanted to ask this question, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? I mean, how come everybody's following him? The place is packed. We're going to read it say it's so packed no one else can get in. Like they have packed this house or this home where this is happening. But the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. So some men carrying a paralyzed man on a mat tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. Now, Jesus knows his audience. He knows who's present there. In, in a few minutes, we're going to read that he knows their thoughts. He knows what everyone is thinking. So the words Jesus speaks next are no accident. They're on purpose, they're intentional, and they're powerful. They're provocative. He knows they're asking the question, Jesus, who are you? Listen to how he, what, what Jesus does first. It's an amazing thing, right? Jesus sees their faith, and the first words Jesus speaks with this guy laying on the floor in front of him are these words, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now you have to picture, you have to picture the Pharisees, what? What did he say? Oh, no, he didn't say that. He can't say that. Only God could say that. How could he say your sins are forgiven? Immediately, like every single light bulb goes off, every warning sign goes off, the Pharisees are on the edge. They cannot believe what Jesus just said. This has to be blasphemy. How could he say this? And they're, they're kind of infuriated. The Pharisees, 
the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he asked them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he stood up in front of them, and as he did so, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately that man stood up, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. And everyone gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. I mean, to get this, <clears throat> when it came to answering the question, who are you, people in that room had some definite opinions after this moment. To the man who had been paralyzed, Jesus was the sin forgiver. To the friends who had carried him there, Jesus was the healer. To the Pharisees, Jesus was the blasphemer. But I want you to get this. Jesus told us exactly who he was. You see, he used a phrase. He used the phrase, son of man. I told you at the beginning that if I asked you who you are, you would probably tell me your name, you would tell me where you're from, and you would tell me what you do. Would you believe this, that Jesus, on his first encounter with the Pharisees, told him exactly who he is, where he's from, and what his mission is, what he does? Check this out. Jesus used a phrase, son of man. Now, in the Bible, when other people talk about Jesus, the word they use most often to describe Jesus is Lord. Other people call him Lord. The second most used word is Christ, the Messiah. But Jesus used a word to describe himself, a name, more than any other thing he called himself. Seventy-eight times Jesus described himself as the Son of Man. It was his favorite title for who Jesus was it's a title that goes back to something that is recorded by Daniel in the Old Testament. And it's incredible what he says about himself when he says the Son of Man. Now I have to tell you that this is a term that points to who Jesus, to his deity, to his nature, to his purpose. And it is a, a picture that will take us to the throne room of heaven. And I have to tell you that today there are some scary images. There are some frightening images of heaven that we're going to see in the conversations between Jesus and the Pharisees, and also some kind of frightening images of hell we'll see today. Oh yeah, we're going to go there too. But let's look at this first image. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. So let's go to Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. Let's listen to the description that Daniel gives that gives light to this term, the Son of Man. Daniel has a vision of heaven. And here's what he says. As I looked, there were thrones set in place. And the Ancient of Days, that's God, the Creator, 
The ancient of days entered and he took a seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. And its wheels were all ablaze. It's a throne that has gears and wheels. It's an interesting thing to think about, the throne of God. It's no standard chair. It's, it's moving. It's living. It's active. It's incredible. This is stuff that only happens in heaven. In the middle of this space, a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, and the court was seated, and the books were open. We jump ahead to verse 13. It says, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me, and that place was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. He was led into his, prison, his presence. He was given authority glory and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. When Jesus said he was the son of man, he's saying, I'm the son of man. I come from heaven and I have a mission and I will be the king whose kingdom will never end. And I will rule forever. Their question was, by what authority can you forgive sins? <laughs> I come from the throne room of heaven. Wow. Jesus told them exactly who he was, but they did not perceive it. They did not perceive it. If the first story <laughs> gave us an insight into who Jesus was, the second story gives us even more insight into the mission that Jesus had. Let's jump ahead in Luke chapter 5 to the second story. It starts in, in verse 27 through 32. In this story, it seems simple enough. This is where Jesus has just led Matthew or Levi uh, and asked him to follow him. And Matthew is so excited about his new relationship with Jesus, he invites all of his friends to his house. And I believe Zacchaeus might have come to this event. And as they come to the gather, to gather together at this place, um, the Pharisees, the teachers of law, come and hang out too. <laughs> they want to see what's going on, right? They're still curious about Jesus. They haven't figured out who he is yet. They're still asking, who are you? Here's how the story plays out in verse 27 of Luke 5. After this, that's after the calling of Levi, Jesus went out, or sorry, he saw the tax collector, he, he asked him to follow me. Verse 28, Levi got up, left everything, followed him. Verse 29, then, then Levi had a, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. A large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Here's the mission Jesus has. He said, well, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. R.C. Sproul, that fabulous teacher and writer, says the Pharisees believed in salvation by segregation. They believed that by separating themselves from people, people who they called the Amharats, 
Remember that phrase. It's, it's a phrase from the Old Testament that in Hebrew, it, it, it first referred to the people who had kind of been left behind during the, the captivity years. And they were the hill people or the country people, and they, some of them had intermarried, a lot of things, and so they had a very bad opinion of the Amharats. They saw them as people of the land, but that came to mean the dirty people. The dirty people, that's what they called the Namharads. When they are talking to Jesus about tax collectors and sinners, they're talking about the Amharads, the dirty people. Why are you associating with them? Why are you hanging out with them? They're dirty, they're sinners, they're unclean, they're the people of the dirt of the land. And they wanted to not be around them, they didn't want to touch such people, they wouldn't be contaminated by such people That's what's at play in the story when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. That's what's at play. It's these righteous, or at least self-righteous people who think they're so much better than this man who's dirty on the side of the road and the ground and been beat up, and they won't touch him. They don't want to be soiled by contact with a dirty person. So when Jesus tells this story, and when Jesus goes and he eats with the Pharisees, he's crossed the line, or with the the tax collector, he's crossed the line. (laughs) You're not supposed to associate with people like that. You shouldn't be hanging out with the dirty people, Jesus. You hang out with the good people, the people called the chaber. That's another Hebrew word. The chaber were the Pharisees. They were the Sadducees. They were literally, the word literally has this connotation. It's the people who are the right friends of God or they are the clean friends of God. That's what the Pharisees thought of themselves, the righteous ones, the clean ones, the ones who were doing what God wanted, the good ones. Do you get the the contrast between the clean chaber and the Amharats, the dirty? (laughs) Don't miss that. The Pharisees felt like they were the chaber, they were the chosen ones, they were the ones that, that had all those good things, good qualities. God was pleased with them. They were taking all kinds of steps to make sure they were holy. They were nothing like these sinners. To the Pharisees, Jesus was going as low as you can go. When he says that it's not the healthy, he's a doctor for the sick, He is flipping the script on them again, right? See, they thought that what mattered most to God was them being perfect people, at least what they thought of as perfect. And when Jesus says this thing about it's it's not the healthy but the sick, the Pharisees miss the most important truth he was saying to them. And sometimes we miss it too. Because you know who the sickest person was? In that room that night, it wasn't the tax collectors and the sinners who knew they were not right with God. The sickest people in the room were the Pharisees themselves. (laughs) They had a terminal illness and didn't even know they were sick. They were dying and they didn't even know they were sick. When they were in the presence, these people who say they're the friends of God, they're the true, clean friends of God, they're in the presence of God and they despise him. And they hate them. They, they, can't, they can't even see. They are so blinded. They don't know how much trouble they're in. They are sick and they are in desperate need of the physician who is just feet away from them. But unlike the tax collectors and the sinners, uh, they're afraid to reach out and to put their faith and confidence in Jesus. Not Levi. <laughs> Not Levi. He's like, man, 
this is incredible. <laughs> I'm like been a really bad person, but Jesus tells me God still loves me, and I got to be a part of that. <laughs> Thinking themselves wise, the Bible says, sometimes people become fools. A little farther into Jesus' ministry, we'll look at one last set of stories. We come to this really fascinating moment. It happens in, in the uh, 16th chapter of Luke. Jesus is talking again, and on this day he's once again going to be in the presence of the Pharisees and others. And in, in this chapter of the Bible, Jesus has some things to say. He tells a story. I'm not going to read it all to you, but in Luke 16, 1 through 8, he tells them a story, a parable. Jesus says, basically, there's a guy who is a collections manager or an asset manager for a, for a very wealthy person, and he's done a bad job. He's done a really bad job managing the assets and collecting the accounts. And so in the story, Jesus says uh, that this guy gets called to give an account for how he's handled the business. And he already knows that the, the owner of the business is going to fire him. He knows he's going to get fired. And so knowing he's going to get fired, Jesus says that this guy, he's like, well, I'm going to get fired and lose my job. And he said, I'm too proud to beg, and, and I'm too old to dig, and so i got to do something to take care of myself without a job. So he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go make friends with all the people who owe my master money. And so what he does is he goes to the people that he's supposed to collect from. And, and let's say that, well, I don't know these are the right numbers, but one guy has a, he owes a thousand bushels of something. And he says, hey, cut that in half and make it 500. Pay it today. And the guy is so happy. He's like, man, that's great. Thanks for cutting my bill in half. And, and so he does it. And he does that to client after client. He cuts them all a deal so they'll all love him. And they do. Now, when Jesus tells that story, he's in front of, guess who? The Pharisees. And he tells that story to them. And, and his story really says, listen, what's the real point of that story? He talks about being shrewd, but the real point is, if you see something bad coming, change. Do something about it. Jesus actually praised the shrewd manager. He praises him. Like, if you see something bad is coming, do something to change the circumstance. And when they hear that story, it says that the Pharisees loved money in verses 14 and 15. And they heard what Jesus said. So check this out. The Pharisees sneered at Jesus. They look right at Jesus and they sneer at him. Like things are breaking down between them. They're, they're already plotting his death. There are no secrets now. When Jesus is in front of them, he knows they're not his friends. He knows they're out to get him. There's no secrets with Jesus and the Pharisees now. Not by Luke 16. And in Luke 16, when they sneer at him, Jesus is about to share with them the hardest of truths. He tells a story that is all about the Pharisees and how they treat other people. And the story, listen, listen to the story, and who do you think represents the Amharats, the people who are dirty people, the people of the dirt? And who might represent the Chaber, the people who live a life of, of luxury because they are so right with God, that's what they think at least. Listen to this story, one of the more frightening stories in the Bible, quite honestly. But I didn't write it, Jesus did. 
So let's hear what Jesus says. Reading from Luke 16, beginning in verse 19, we hear this parable of Jesus. There was a rich man. Who loved money? The Pharisees. They were rich. Who was dressed in purple and fine linen. Nice, clean clothes. This sounds like the chamber, doesn't it? Lived in luxury every day. Surely God had blessed them. I mean, how else could they account for such a fine life? But at his gate was laid a beggar, laid like in the dirt, named Lazarus. He was covered with sores. He longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table to the dirt, to the floor. He was so unclean that even the dogs would come and lick his sores. <laughs> this is the Amharets. Do you see that? <laughs> this, is the, this is the epitome of a dirty person. The time came when the beggar died. And here's where Jesus flips everything. The angels carried him to Abraham's side. They carried him to paradise, to heaven. The rich man also died. He was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, the rich man looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Lazarus was that beggar. He was in heaven. So this rich man, this chamber, calls out to Abraham, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. The rich man begs, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, said the rich man. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, If they did not listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Man, Jesus didn't just tell him who he was. He even told him his mission. This sermon about hell wasn't meant to be one that condemned them to hell forever, but one that made them think, if something bad is coming, I need to do something to change that outcome. And if they didn't get it before, he just made it really clear. You might think that you're the chamber, but listen, friend, in the end, the first will be last. The last will be first. 
And God knows who all of us really are. You can hide who you are from everyone else, but not one of us can hide who we are from God. We don't get to know exactly how many of the Pharisees came to put their faith and their trust in Jesus. But we do get to know about a couple. One of them was a man named Nicodemus. We read about him in John 3, and we read about him again in John 19. And Nicodemus was somebody who had been a Pharisee. He was a part of that group. He'd heard Jesus talk. But unlike his friends, he has a change of heart. And an incredible thing happens. Like, he had been a person who wanted, like, everyone to realize how spectacular he was, and he bought, like, the most excessive amount of burial perfume because, like, when he died, he wanted people to smell this perfume for miles to say, oh, what a good guy he must have been. But on the night Jesus is killed, two men go before the authorities to take the body of Jesus. Joseph, who we don't know all of his story, and Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. And what they did was they took the body of Jesus. He touched a body of someone who had been hung on a tree. This is the action of the Amharats. And he wrapped it in linens. He took all the burial spices that he had for himself and he anointed Jesus with them. He was saying, I don't need all that fancy stuff. Because what matters to me isn't how I leave this earth, but where I go for eternity. Of course, there's another Pharisee. When we don't hear about in Luke, we don't hear about him until Acts, but he was surely a part of the groups that had heard Jesus because he hated Christians. And that's Saul, who later becomes Paul. He takes a little longer to come around, but he does. Sometimes that's how we are too. <laughs> Some of us take longer to come around than others. But friends, I hope that we'll all come around. Because the one who calls us, friends is the Son of Man. And he calls us from the throne room of heaven. And he says to us, whosoever will may come. That we can drink freely from the water of everlasting life. So what about us? Who are you? It's a good question to ask. Am I the Amharats, the sinner saved by grace? Or am I the Chaber, the person who is justified in their own eyes, but far away from God? Most of us are probably somewhere in the middle. I don't know where you are, but God knows exactly where you are and who you are. So in this last moment, I encourage you to think about the lessons Jesus taught the Pharisees. To think about your future. And if things need to change, heed the warnings of Jesus and change them now while you can. Whatever decision you need to make, I pray that you'll make it as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation.